Hello, AOC listener. And if you're opening this gift on the day of, happy holidays and guyard. Paul and I decided to treat you a little bit extra as a thanks for sticking with our humble show. We asked for listener questions and you folks came through with some really solid ones. It made for a fun little episode, so thank you. Take care of yourselves, love yourselves and love one another. All right, let's answer some questions. Hi, I'm Paul Duffield, a comic creator who has just finished laying out a comic at work, which is really cool and I'm excited to see it being printed. Hi, I'm Joss. I'm getting tattooed tomorrow, so we're doing an early recording so this little baby boy can get early to bed. So straight out the gate, we are starting with Elvea from Blue Sky, and they're asking, what stories slash stories would you love to see retold in a comic format? So I have a kind of a big obvious answer for this one. It's a book that has been adapted a few times into film and done very poorly both times, in my opinion anyway, which is Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea Cycle, which was one of my favourite books as a kid, and there's still so much to love about it. And I think a comic book adaptation of it could be absolutely gorgeous, because unlike a lot of fantasy of a similar kind, it's like one of the OG wizard school fantasies. It has a really kind of subtle feel to it, a really immersive world. And Ghibli, when they did their Tales of Earthsea adaptation, started to get there with the backgrounds and some of the feel of the world, but they just didn't go all the way. I'd absolutely love to see a comic that completely nailed that. Yeah, I've only watched the Ghibli movie, and I've only watched it once. From what I remember, it was very confusing. It felt like they just started somewhere and ended somewhere and left a lot to be desired. That's almost literally how you describe the choice about the adaptation. So there are three principal books in the Earthsea Cycle. Then there's a fourth, which was written later. And then there is also a series of short stories and a fifth that was written even later than that. So it began as a trilogy and it sort of expanded. And they took the material from the third book and then wove in certain elements of the material from the first and second books and then just went off the rails at the end. Something that doesn't quite make sense because it didn't really establish the characters and it chose a focal character who only comes in in the third book. It was a series of really strange decisions, basically. And a real shame because it could have been incredible. In my head, Ghibli was always the perfect match for Earthsea. When I heard that they were doing this adaptation, I was freaking out. Because I also knew that due to a series of really unfortunate circumstances, Miyazaki himself had approached Le Guin many, many years ago when he was still in his sort of movie-making prime and wanted to do an adaptation. But at the time, Le Guin had never really seen animation that wasn't Disney before. So she was like, meh, not interested in this. I don't want someone turning my, my thing into a kid's movie. And the tragedy of that, like, passing in the night decision, followed by the adaptation later where she finally, you know, she knew how good all this stuff was and she was excited and Miyazaki himself was meant to be headlining it. And then it got passed to his son and then it got trapped in some development hell, as far as I'm aware. It eventually got released. It just, it wasn't that movie. You explaining how the premise of the original material is, I'm kind of getting light flashbacks to Noska. Because the Noska Ghibli movie is just a tiny little part of the full manga. 
I have never read the full manga, I just read a little bit of it, like the three first volumes or so. But even when watching just a movie, you get a much bigger sense of world building and explanation, even though a lot of stuff is just matter of fact. So it's bizarre that they managed to do that with one source material and not another that seems vaguely familiar in structure. Yeah, absolutely. I think ultimately it's just a skill of the storyteller. I've seen a Goro Miyazaki film that I really enjoyed, but it was relatively low key. It may be that he just doesn't have the chops to handle that kind of, I mean, it's not quite high fantasy. I'd call it maybe sort of cultural fantasy material. Yeah, I don't, it's sadly speculation is all we can ever have, all we can ever make because, you know, it, it wasn't the movie it could have been and, and who knows quite why in the end. Yeah, and especially Studio Ghibli is relatively private, so I can't imagine them ever coming out and saying, oh yeah, this is what went down. So we'll always just sit here and guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how about you? I have three different titles and very different in themselves titles for my pick for this question. <laughs> the first one is my most recent hyper obsession. So maybe in a couple of years, I wouldn't have said this, but maybe I still would because when I first experienced this, I was just blown the fuck away. And it's Elden Ring. I would have loved oh. to see a comic adaptation of Elden Ring that focused more on individual character stories. Sadly, I'm garbo with names, so I don't remember half of them. But for example, Blythe, the wolf, I would have loved to see a backstory of his. And I, I know a lot of people would probably go, eh, but that's like the beauty is the mystique and not knowing. And people would overexplain. I firmly believe that you can do a origin story or a backstory that isn't fucking wanking off in your face. I do believe that you can do something beautifully subtle and still introducing new aspects to a lovable character. Mm, just extending the mystique. Yeah, absolutely. And if someone who both had the art style to fit, but also the storytelling chops to execute this, mm, sign me the fuck up. I would have loved that. Is there anyone you would have in mind? You know, if you let's imagine the goddess of comics came to you and said, <laughs> Jaws, I give you infinite budget and make you the editor of the Elden Ring comic. Who, who would you go and hire? Oh my god, I feel power hungry already just imagining this. <laughs> the issue is, I honestly don't know. Because the art style I'm picturing for this is stupidly detailed and mature. What I normally gravitate towards in artists isn't necessarily what I picture for this specific comic. Interesting. But if, hmm, I don't necessarily think it's the fit I would go with if I could sit down and do research just because it isn't really what I'm picturing for this, but just like shooting from the hip, I would love to see Bailey Rosenlund tackle a uh, Elden Ring story just because they have that gothic thing to their art style. I've seen them do fan art from Elden Ring. Yeah, I can imagine that working amazingly. My second title is probably not a surprise to anyone. It's Silent Hill 2. Oh, yeah. Oh, pray for a Silent Hill comic that's not the Silent Hill comics that already exist. I own both of those. I got them years ago and I have yet to read them. And one day I kind of want to do one of them for the podcast. <laughs> That'd be interesting, because I read them a very long time ago. I remember being disappointed at the time, but that doesn't necessarily mean much. There might be something redeeming there that I wasn't able to sort of pick up on back then. Yeah, I suspect if I had read them at the time when I first got my hands on them, 
I would have probably expected them to be very similar to the games that I love, which is 1 to 4. And I don't think they're anything like that. I think they're very vague, saucy Silent Hill with something completely different. I think it's basically Silent Hill and the title and that's it, from what I understand. That's roughly what I remember of them. What I would love to see retold, it's Silent Hill 2 and just like in comic format. And the game is perfect, so it's not that the game in itself, just like Elden Ring, the game is perfect. I just want more. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like a really clever storyteller, someone who could get really crazy with panels and transitions and page turns, could take some of the beautiful visual storytelling that goes on in the game in such a way that you can only experience it through the game and translate that into something equivalent that you can only experience in a comic. That would be really cool. Right now, I'm just envisioning the final boss fight with Pyramid Head, where you're fighting two of them. And then when they... Spoiler alert for a very old game by now, by the way, so skip like 20 seconds ahead if you don't want to hear that. But when they spear themselves at the end of that fight and just stand there stabbed in their own helmet, seeing that in comic format... Yeah, and a big double spread. Look lovely. So for my third one, which is a hard left of this uh, horror-esque highway, is the Grand Budapest Hotel. <laughs> <gasps> oh, I love that film. <laughs> Same. It. I mean, again, perfect film in my humble opinion. Like, visual masterpiece. I know some people are like, oh, Wes Anderson, <laughs> whatever, bro, whatever. Go back to Naruto and football and beer. I yeah. personally really enjoy Wes Anderson. I know he's very polarized for some reason, which I've never quite understood. I think it's because he's like hipstery and people just don't vibe with that. And it's probably a lot of, funnily enough, vibe and lack of substance in his movies for some folks, but it's just yeah. up my alley. And I will defend the Grand Budapest Hotel till I die. <laughs> and to see that in a fully colored comic format with a quirky European comic style. Mm, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, his framing is so, so formal and so careful that you've already basically got your panel compositions in the movie. Exactly. I've always thought the way that he directs reminds me of comics in the first place. So Yeah, and there's some directors where you can just see the storyboarding. And I, mm. I personally really love that. I'm sure there's some people don't enjoy that. And I can also see it being taken too far as, for example, Zack Snyder, where it's literally lifted panel by panel from the comic adaptation. But when you do it with an original eye and it's your vision and then you are really, at least it comes across like you're really loyal to the storyboard. Mm, Gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I had a little bit of a similar question from me to you, which is if you could choose any IP for you to adapt any existing IP, limitless budget, and you would be the artiste, what would you pick? I'm going to make the same thing, the same answer here. It's it's going to be the Earthsea cycle. And this is one of the reasons I desperately want to see it adapted, because maybe it's hubris, but I think I could do a great job. <laughs> So if someone with infinite budget out there who just desperately wants a comic adaptation of Earthsea and wants to throw cash at me is listening, please do. <laughs> I love this pitch. There's something about the magic in that world. It's it's not wave a wand and get a spell. It's not see a beautiful sparkly effect. It, it's nothing like magic in anything else I've come across. It's all about the power of words and the power of naming. 
I think there's just some beautifully subtle things that you could do with panels to demonstrate shifts of power or moments of naming and and the way that the obvious visuals of the story are going to match up with that focus on text and words and names. can imagine decorative panel borders. Oh, it would be so good. (laughs) I don't think I'm ready for it. Like, it's one of those things where if I really were to do it, I would be absolutely bricking it because I still feel like I need to develop some more. And there were certain some certain artists, if I could like absorb their vibes and then do it, then I'd be I'd be ready. So how about you? What would you uh, what would you adapt? I really had to chew on this for a little bit. And I landed on Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask. But I would focus on all of the mask quests, not the boss mask that you get from the four temples, but all of the side quest masks and make it like this little capsule of slice of life within the three days that you have in that game. Yeah, I can imagine that really working well. It, it almost sounds like the format of a really popular shonen comic or something, like Quest for the Masks. <laughs> yeah, but I, I would want to focus on what I always gravitated towards with Majora's Mask is the mature nature. Like even if you're playing a kid and several of the characters you're dealing with are kids, you're also dealing with a lot of adults and you're sent on quests by and for adults. And the quest that always stood out to me, which I know stands out to most Majora's Mask fans, is the Cafe and Anju questline, where Cafe has been reverted into a child by the imp who's wearing Majora's Mask. He was supposed to marry Anju, and they had masks, like wedding masks, and you're sent on a goose chase to find those masks again and reunite the couple by the end of the third day, just before the moon is uh, striking down. And you reunite them as a child and an adult. And it's heartbreaking because imagine you've had a partner for a long time and suddenly one of them has reverted back to being a child. Like, what the fuck do you do? It's so tragic. Yeah. Be a series of very strange tales. There's just so many beautiful, very small, intimate stories behind some of the masks. So, yeah, that's definitely what I would love to do. There are some Zelda comic adaptations, aren't there? Do, do any of them cross over with Majora's Mask or...? I believe every single game, as far as I know, has gotten a manga adaptation. Like, even stuff like Oracle of Seasons and Oracle of Ages, if I'm not completely mistaken. I haven't really looked into them because they are relatively short. Like, I believe every game is just one volume. Right. And that's a lot of storytelling, too. Like, all of Ocarina of Time, for example, just into a tiny volume seems very stressed. And if any of the listeners have a big warm spot for them and saying that, oh, yeah, they're really, really fucking good and you're just missing out, then feel free to reach out and let me know because I'll gladly pick one up and try it. But yeah, I've just never gravitated towards them because they it did strike me as weird to chuck that much story into one volume per game. Yeah, makes sense. Our next question is from Devo from Blue Sky. And they're asking, what's the earliest comic or comic-ish work you remember making? Do you still have it? What's the plot? I feel like that says a lot about a person. (laughs) I'm already (laughs) laughing because mine is so bad. Oh, mine too. (laughs) And specifically, it's it's the the question isn't just what's the first comic you drew. It's also, I feel like that says a lot about you. I'm (laughs) the pressure's on. I'm terrified because. Mine is a dumpster fire. Do you want to go first? (laughs) I couldn't find. I think I still have it somewhere, but I'm not sure where. It's literally like an A4 piece of paper folded in half. And I must have made it when I was maybe sort of 10. 
And at the time, my only comic exposure was that I'd read a ton of a comic called The Beano, which is sort of like a weekly kids comic that was amazingly popular in Britain. You, you will barely find someone who hasn't read The Beano in Britain. I read it a lot. I wrote this little comic. I think the main character was like a kangaroo or something. I don't know why. And it was just a little gag comic about them working out in the gym and then they get really, really big muscles. They try and go and impress some friends and one of their friends like pops their muscles and it turns out that they just wore an inflatable suit and that was the punchline and that's the whole comic. (laughs) I don't know what that (laughs) says about me, but there you go. It was just a sort of a a silly four-page gag comic. Oh my god, why is yours so cute and innocent? I I am sitting, like, I'm sweating. (laughs) Go on, you gotta tell. You gotta tell. So, just to paint the scene a little bit with a sprinkle of context. This was around when I was 15. It was in the midst of my yaoi decade. Oh, okay. And here comes the important fact, which is gonna have you go, It was also in the midst of The Sopranos. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Didn't expect that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to get it myself. I had made my first proper OCs. Two men. They were, of course, incredibly fucking gay for one another. Of course. One was a crossdresser because I've always been into gender fuckery, even before I knew what, like, being trans or being gender fluid or any of that. Like, I had none of that terminology growing up, but I was always gravitating towards, like, challenging gender norms. So one of them was a crossdresser. And then for some reason, the Italian mafia was also involved. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) I believe (laughs) I believe the crossdresser was actually the son of this big mafioso. (laughs) Wow. Had you read fake by this point? Yes, of course I had. Okay, okay, right. There wasn't a bone of originality in my body. I I was fifteen, I shamelessly (laughs) lifted and stole from everything around me. So yeah, I think I made like four pages or something, which I still have somewhere to my horror, where these two main characters, I believe their names was like Kim and Maximilian. Wow. And they had an adoptive child together because for some reason I made made them like this perfect nuclear family. (laughs) (laughs) And I just made a couple of pages to show how perfect and happy they were together in this very challenging world that they existed in. And I'm so warm. I can't believe that I, too, was a cringe teenager. But if any teenagers are listening, it's not just you. We've all been there, buddy. And I suppose I should give a little shout out to what I would say would be my first really serious attempt to do fiction. Because this little comic that I drew was sort of off the cuff. I don't remember caring that deeply about it. I think I just wanted to see if I could draw a little comic. At the time, I hadn't really thought of comics as something that you could tell exciting stories with. I was more excited by books and stuff. I'd already read all of The Lord of the Rings. Uh, I'd read a lot of Earthsea by then as well. So my first proper piece of fiction was this thing called The Lotharian, and it was going to be a three-volume fantasy epic. I had the characters. The main character was this dude with a scar that he got from a dragon. Him and his companions start out in a village, which of course is burned, so they have to go on to their epic <laughs> quest. It was like full in, hip deep nonsense fantasy of the kind that you can only write when you're 13. Oh, I fucking love it. 
I think it says a lot that between this cringe ass whatever the fuck I just explained that I tried to make when I was 15, 16, which never went anywhere, obviously, because I didn't have the structure or the tool set or anything. And then I never tried my hands at proper comic making until my late 20s, which I made my first go at witchcraft that I made and finished in its entirety. And they couldn't be more different. <laughs> wow, I didn't realize witchcraft was your first sort of serious comic project. That's amazing. Yeah, it's Baby's first comic. I have wow. never done any like serious because I don't consider what I did when I was 15 serious. That was me just being a hobbyist and having fun and being incredibly self-indulgent. Witchcraft yeah. was the first where I sat down, I made a script, I made a character. I was like, I'm doing this. This is my comic. Damn. Wow. Well, talk about learning to run before you can walk. You just like went straight out sprinting. I am one of those people who I keep kind of advising against don't make your magnum opus your first one because you're gonna burn the fuck out and it takes a lot out of you <laughs> so uh, try a couple of pages first to see if you love it and don't don't be me because uh, then roughly three to four years after finishing it you're completely redoing it because it was baby's first comic and it had potential but you didn't have the proper tool set to execute it so yeah yeah <laughs> Alrighty, so Samuel from Blue Sky is asking, are there things that inspire you or give you the fire to make stuff that aren't media? Or are there non-media things that are an integral part of your process? Stuff that I'm involved with creatively that's non-media. I mean, I love woodworking. I've made a lot of bits and pieces for our house. I've made a gaming table that I use a lot. It's got like a card rail around the outside and things that you you can take on and off the top so that you can have a normal table and save your game underneath a board game, that is. Mainly because board gaming tables are so ridiculously expensive. But I really love that kind of thing. It does recharge me creatively a lot, just making things, like making things with my hands. That's it, really. Other than that, it's very media-focused. How about you? I really struggle with this. I think one of the main things for me is taking my long walks, but even there I'm cheating a little bit because I'm always listening to something. I'm always listening to a podcast or music or a, a book. But even if I wasn't, I need to move my body to keep my brain relatively healthy enough and to get like new inputs because sometimes I can walk outside and I just see something and I go oh man and then it triggers a chain of events in my head where I'm like I can totally put this scene in my story or next time we play D&D &D, I can solve it this way or you know it, even if I'm just looking at a bush of flowers or something it just triggers something in me but I just realized now even though maybe it's still a little cheating because in today's society it's hard to do this without any sort of <laughs> assistance, I guess. But being social, unless you're actually meeting people IRL, which is, of course, very much possible to do without any sort of assistance. Just what we are doing now, just talking back and forth, really jumbles my brain in a positive way because it reminds me that the world is so much bigger than I managed to fool myself and that my worries are so small and insignificant at the end of the day and I always need social input. Not, I don't need a person telling me that, but I need to push myself away a little bit and just chat with someone to forget about all of the shit going on in my life. Mm, I would say for me, walking as well, walking in nature specifically is wonderful. Looking up the history of the place that I live and to something that I do with my partner a lot, she's really into local history. Then finding things that we can go and see, like a historic royal forest or once we found 
a marker nearby which used to denote the boundary that the ancient royal surveyors would take and this thing's been there for like 800 years and it's covered in lichen and it's beautiful and just finding little things like that it makes me feel connected to the land that I'm in in a really intimate way yeah and it's also something about gaining perspective I think that's the through line I'm getting from answering this question for myself is just distancing and perspective to recenter my attention to something completely different yeah absolutely yeah perspective is everything with creativity isn't it it really is not only in the sense of getting fresh input so for example being mindful about being inclusive or similar stuff like that but also not getting too caught up in what we just touched upon earlier of you know your own shortcomings being a little kinder more forgiving to yourself and getting that little pat on the back that yeah I am doing this I I am really trying and instead of just being oh but everything I do sucks and sometimes just taking a literal step away from that is very very helpful like it's the ultimate compromise between being ruthlessly self-focused and being ruthlessly just being able to step out of the self at the same time Alrighty, are we ready for the next question yeah Fiona in the discord asks any comics you have read that you expected to hate and ended up loving, maybe outside of a usual genre or an art style you weren't drawn to at first? The immediate thought that struck me with this is I wouldn't necessarily pick up something that I thought I would dislike, since I'm more often than not, and by more often than not, I mean always paying money for comics. <laughs> so if I see a comic that doesn't really titillate me visually or in a storytelling way, I just put it back and I go, ah, I don't think that's for me. And it would have to be, for example, you introducing something to me for me to pick that up again. I would probably never have considered it, or sorry, I should rephrase that. I wouldn't even have known of The Walking Man had it not been for you. But oh. I also never thought I would dislike that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> when I went into that, I was just very excited. It gave me kind of exactly what was on the tin. I was pleased reading it. It was comfy. It was sweet. It was the exact kind of thing that I enjoy. But I would probably never have come across it if it wasn't for you. It is very hard for me to give a sincere answer to this since I, first of all, I really try to shy away from the word hate because it's so overused in society. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I tend to say, oh, that isn't for me. Or yeah, I didn't necessarily like that. I think the only thing that remotely came to mind, and not I did not pick it up thinking I would dislike it, I just didn't think it would win me over as much as it did, which was the manga My Love Story. I immediately thought, here we go, another fucking straight couple story. It's probably gonna have all the anime tropes of miscommunication, perverted nature, just understimulating, I guess where I would leave after one volume and go, well, that was a fucking waste of my time. And instead, I was completely obsessed. I uh, watched the anime of this. I haven't read the manga. And I almost didn't start because it was in a period where, you know, I've always liked shoujo manga, shoujo anime, but it was in a period where there was a lot of moe shit around. I had a look at the style and I was like, oh, is it, um, is it going to be dodgy and weird? I'll give it a try. And then it was just so sweet and I was rooting so hard for the characters. And one of the things that I really liked about it is that they flipped the usual relationship on its head. But they gave her the big person personality and they gave him the small person personality, which is really, really nice. If I'd read the comic, I think that might be a good candidate for my answer to this question as well. 
but I think I'm going to have to go instead with one that I mentioned before in our Influences episode, so I won't go over it too much. Listen to that one if you haven't already. But it's a manga called Black and White, or Tekon Kinkrete, by Tayo Matsumoto. And I remember a friend lent it to me, and I thought it was ugly as all sin. Really didn't like the artwork. <laughs> Gave it a go because I really respected his taste and absolutely fell in love with it. And it changed my opinion of how you should communicate with artwork. And I go into that in real depth in the Influences episode. Again, I'd recommend listening to that one. Okay, so the next question that we're tackling is from June from the Discord. And they're asking, what was your first introduction to comics? I think I might have already answered that by accident, actually. I think it was the Beano. I read that from before an age that I can even remember. You know, it sounds like I'm describing the 1920s or something like this, but <laughs> you had to go down the corner store and buy it for like 50p or however much it was back then. And that was the only way you could get it. And I used to do that with my parents every week. And then eventually I'd do it with myself with my own pocket money. Looking back, I don't think it was anything special. I'd go so far as to say parts of it probably actively, actively stopped me from thinking that comics were anything particularly serious. Because it was, without exception, all gag strips and all pretty puerile ones as well. It was almost a surprise to me when I discovered manga later in life that it could have interesting, mature, not stupid or not funny storylines, or that it could relate to something that wasn't superheroes, because that was my only other exposure at that point. So I like had two kind of comics geneses. One was reading the Beano, and then enjoying comics, but sort of dismissing them almost without even realising it. And then the other one was probably reading the Akira manga. Uh, Again, same friend who lent me black and white lent me that. That was the first thing he ever lent me. And I was like, holy shit, what is this? That's a whiplash. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, you can do this with comics and animation? Because I watched the film around a similar period of time as well. This is outrageous. I want to do it. You know, that was my uh, response. (laughs) Yeah, my story is somewhat similar, but completely different titles. I started with Donald Duck. Donald Duck comics was, and for all I know, still is huge in Norway. Classic. Same kind of mentality where I went, oh, this is funny, but the only comic out there is Donald Duck, and I don't fucking care about making that. And at some point, I also outgrew it, so I was just like, oh, I guess, I guess that's comics. But that's when I finally started to get in touch with manga in my teenage years. My first two, as I said before, was Fake and Naruto back to back. And I had a similar reaction to you. I went, what? You can have sex in comics or you can beat people to fuck up in comics. Those were my two very polar opposite reactions <laughs> to reading fake and, and Naruto. <laughs> and that just blew my mind. So I was one of those very typical teenage kids. Uh, or sorry, today they're more typical when I was a teenager. I Again, involuntary hipster, I was the fucking weirdo who read Japanese comics and people were like, how do you understand Japanese? Not realizing it was obviously translated to English. (laughs) Uh, So yeah. Okay. Vid from the Discord is asking, what is the comic that you reread the most times? That one's tricky. Yeah, I struggle with this one. Gotta be very upfront here. There's few comics I religiously revisit few if any the reason i revisit a lot is for our show so i have to say some of the titles that i've read before 
I've now read maybe two or three times thanks to our show. And that's probably the most I've reread a comic outside of my youth where I also don't remember what... Like, fake is probably what I've reread the most just because as a teen, I didn't have endless access to media. So you started to read over, play over, watch over what you had. Um, I also don't tend to re-watch or reread media a lot. The few instances where I have really stand out. And for comics, that's The Walking Man, I think. I love just picking it up and flicking through it and reading maybe one little story out of it. And I've done that so many times since I first sort of discovered it. And I've stared at the little preview in the exhibition catalogue that was the only place I had any pages from it for a good number of years so much (laughs) that that's definitely the comic I've returned to over and over again. And it's a really easy one too, because it doesn't demand anything of you. It takes you to a really lovely place, I think. I'm tempted to say another one for me is Wet Moon by Sophie Campbell. Oh, yeah. I have definitely read that numerous times because I do believe I talked about this in our influence uh, episode, so I'm not going to go too much into it. But yeah, it did really influence me for a while. But yeah, other than that, I... Kind of similar to you with Walking Man. Sometimes when I feel I need a little juice or an and any kind of creative input, I will also just take out a comic that I know I really enjoy and just flick through and like, how did they solve this panel layout? Or where did they place the speech bubbles and stuff like that? But sitting down and reading back to back, that usually takes years for me because I need to kind of reset my impression of something and then come back to it fresh. Yeah, absolutely. Another comic that I've read a lot and keep on coming back to segments of is Yotsuba. It's just a really gentle comedy manga about a dad raising like a three-year-old kid and the comic timing in it is perfection. It's so good. I've never seen anyone with comic timing quite like the uh, author of this. Okay, final question. This one is from Tumblr from Obscure Glory. We are really getting questions from all... I feel like we have traveled back in time answering some of these questions today with like what platform we got them on. I love it. Uh, But anyway, Obscure Glory is asking, when you're picking comics slash graphic novels to read for yourselves, how important is the art style versus the genre or story to you? I guess to clarify, would the art put you off a genre you would normally choose to read, or would you read a genre slash story you aren't normally into because you love the art? This is a really interesting one, and it's actually quite a deep question because it gets to the relationship between art and storytelling in comics. And for me, they're two halves of the same coin. If I say I like the art, I don't just mean that I find the style aesthetically pleasing. I mean that it delivers the story to me well. Good artwork can make the difference between a stiff sequence of dialogue and a dialogue where you deeply feel the characters. So usually speaking, if I'm looking for something, the art is the first thing that I will look at, but it won't be like, oh, I like the cover of that. I want to read the comic. It will be, I've flicked through and damn, that page is delivered well. I want to read this because then I know I'm going to enjoy the page by page experience at the very least. But then there is also that aesthetic level. I want to be as honest as possible and not kind of give a trick answer to the question because that's a bit like, well, I just like good things. (laughs) I do have really strong aesthetic preferences and there are certain aesthetics which will turn me off, even if technically the art's delivering the story well. So a good example of that is I find it very difficult to read comics in that absolutely classic Marvel house style that was probably most prevalent in the kind of like 90s and zeros and is getting a bit more diverse now. 
but anything with that thick cross-hatched line work with airbrushed deep intense colors over the top you'd have to strap my eyeballs to it with like tape (laughs) fucking clockwork orange (laughs) yeah yeah and like hold it up and turn the pages to make me read it um but i'm sure there's some good stuff that looks like that out there yeah man i'm glad you said it and not me (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> I have a record of being a DC slash Marvel hater. <laughs> and I feel like I don't need to fuel that uh, fire even more. Right. I agree with absolutely everything you said, by the way. There are times where I pick up a comic because maybe the cover intrigued me or even the title alone intrigued me. And then I skim the blurb because I never have the patience to read a long blurb. So if the blurb is long as a bad year, I'm just like, blah, 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 blah. And then I start flicking through the comic itself and see if the art seller grabs me. But there's been many times, for example, PTSD Radio is a very good example where I saw the cover and I went, oh my god, this is a great cover. Even the title alone, like PTSD Radio, that's a grabbing ass fucking title. Didn't even read the blurb. I open it. I saw some horrific imagery in the most positive sense of the way. And I went, (laughs) yep, this is coming home with me. I'm very much a vibe purchaser. It's very rare that I bother really going, "Mm, what is the the notes and undertones and flavor of the cake that this comic was made in? Nah, it's vibes. It's all vibes. I'm actually thinking about it in a sort of an adjacent media where the art is very important. Animation, I... I'm much more like you, especially if I'm looking for anime. It's partly because I feel like I've watched enough that I get an instant vibe off the style where I can almost tell what the storytelling is going to be like just by glancing at the character design. And it's very rare for me to watch something where I get one impression off the character design and a totally different one off off the watch. And actually, my love story is a perfect example. Yeah, I also have, of course, genre preferences and genres that I'm completely disinterested in. I think that's probably where we differ the most, where, unless I've pegged you completely wrong, you are very much into both sci-fi and fantasy, and those are probably the titles that usually has me go, no, thank you, please. (laughs) Right, yeah, yeah. I'm a sucker for, like, epic classic fantasy, and I'm a sucker for hard science fiction, so if you slap me around the face with either of those, I will thank you. (laughs) (laughs) you say that i always pictured a fucking gif of the woman getting all the sausages thrown at her face (laughs) yeah those sausages are fantasy stories and and that's me but yeah there are of course i mean i've mentioned several titles today that are definitely fantasy like elden ring or legend of zelda so it's not that i'm going ew no never it's just that for me it is a genre that um it needs something very fucking fresh to have me go, ooh, instead of going, ugh. And it's interesting that you said you're very vibes heavy because vibes can cross genres. Like Elden Ring is such a vibe. I'd say it's more of a vibe than a genre. Yep, 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 yep. I think my vibe is just delicious obscurity. (laughs) Mmm, I like that. (laughs) If I can have some round undertone of delicious obscurity, I'm fucking in. Yep, count me in too. Those are all the listener questions we've gotten. Thank you so much to everyone who sent questions. They've been really, really, really fun to answer. I'm still totally shook that we have listeners. I have to pinch myself slightly. (laughs) (laughs) That we even got one question is blowing my mind. But we also had a couple of more questions for one another. Do you want to jump out with uh, one that you had? Do you think recording this show has changed your perspective or feelings on comics at all? And if so, how? Oh boy. So I started brewing on this question because I think it's really good. 
I think it has matured me a little bit. It has made me a little more gentle and appreciative. When we first started talking about doing a podcast together, I actually, and I think we have mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. My first subject idea was movies because I feel very comfortable talking about movies. And you were like, nope, I don't want to say my opinions out loud on movies. Nope, not comfortable with that. And then I went, okay, my second suggestion is comics. And you were like, hell fucking yeah, sign me the fuck up, I'm down. And I went, yeah, just FYI, since we are both in this business in one way or another, I will be very neutral in my way of delivering my likes and dislikes, especially dislikes, because I don't want to be a cunt. I don't want to burn bridges. I don't want to look like an absolute tool. And I don't want people taking stuff I say out of context and ruin my own career down the line. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell in the first couple of episodes that I was like, like, as we say in Norwegian, I was sitting very fucking still in the boat. I didn't want to stir or (laughs) shake anything. I like that phrase. Going through this year, and I could tell, especially with the second episode, that I was much more comfortable being honest without being mean about it. I don't think I was mean. I just think I was comfortable giving my unveiled opinion. In that respect, it has just made me be a little more secure in my own opinions and allowing myself the room to voice those opinions. I guess that's not like perfectly answering how I like my relationship with comics have changed because it's more changed my relationship with myself. I also like to think in turn that has made me more capable of enjoying what I enjoy and being fully upfront with, yeah, this wasn't for me and not feel bad about that. Oh, that's lovely. And I think that one of the things that we cover on the show a lot is how much consuming media has to do with the self. So it's almost like you can't divide yourself out from the reading experience. And changing your reading experience is a bit like changing yourself as well, and vice versa. Uh, Yeah, I I think that would have to be my full answer, because that's the one that really leapt out to me first when I tried to think about this. Because I already knew I loved comics. I mean, I want to make them myself. I am making them myself. I have nothing but love and admiration for people who have this as a profession as well. (laughs) I think there's a lot of other things that I hadn't necessarily considered going into this that has changed, at least for the better for me. What about you? I think for me, it's really reignited a passion that never left, but had kind of faded because it had gotten so deeply tangled in my day-to-day work and my anxieties around my own creativity and the highs and lows of how well I was doing with whatever comic I was working on that I'd lost that spark that motivated me to pick up comics and just read them and have opinions and get excited about them. And doing this show has just completely reignited that for me, which has been wonderful. Reading comics and only thinking about them in their own terms and then having great conversations with you about them, it's been a proper treat. That is such an important thing that you mentioned there, because through doing this podcast with you, I really come back to having such a wonderful and healthy conversation with a friend about something I enjoy. Just gushing about something. It's a trait that I completely lacked later in life due to my isolation, where you can go online and be like, oh, I really like this and that's fun, but it's it's not the same as doing it with someone you're comfortable with. No, because it's never a conversation, is it? It's just sort of someone will come along and tell you what they think as well, but unless you take it to the DMs, you don't get that nice backwards and forwards. It's actually funny, not to get like too deep and real and main, but that's kind of how our entire friendship started because I was back on Twitter. I made a post where I was like, hey, I'm looking for stupid, 
bad, but so bad it's good fantasy, aka The Legend of the Seeker. And you were like, say no more. You're talking about Legend <laughs> of the Seeker. Someone rang my fucking bell and you slid into my DMs. And we just like, for ages about Legend of the Seeker. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That's it. You've got to take it to the DMs. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love that we bonded over that absolute trash fire. <laughs> and no joke, when you started answering the first question today about what kind of IP you would adapt, I almost hoped you were going down the path of saying Legend of the Seeker. <laughs> oh my god, oh, there's a part of me that would want that to be the case. No joke, Paul. Down the line, I would love if we collaborated on the Legend of the Seeker comic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even if it's just like a five pager or something. Just like a little fan scene. We're the yeah. two we're the dying breath of the fandom of Legend of the Seeker. <laughs> <laughs> My question for you is what comic that we covered on the show this year did you end up enjoying the most? And did you have any comics that we didn't read for the show that you enjoyed in your own time? Of course this is a hard question. We've covered some great stuff. Outside of New York, New York, there hasn't been a single dud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to give two answers. And the one that I enjoyed most, just flat out entertained me most, fake. I just, we had such <gasps> a fun episode recording it and I had such a blast. It was such a nostalgia hit reading it, even though I'd never read it before. Oh, that makes me so happy to hear. Absolutely loved it. And then I'm going to go for my top sort of technical pick. I loved everything about this. And because it was short, it was also sweet. I'm going to go for Radesha. Uh, it's the one that I'm scanning down and I'm just thinking, yeah, just from cover to cover, I just had the most fun. It's hard not to mention everything else. But if you want to know everything else I enjoyed this year, go back and listen to our entire back catalogue because it's all great. Yeah, that's the thing. As I said, opening wise, is that... New York, New York is by far the one we read where we both went, oh my lord. But even that we had a very fun episode, because that was very therapeutic, just sitting there about everything that was very difficult with that manga. Yeah. But outside of that, I am 100 agreeing with you again. Fake and Rodesha are probably my topics for the exact same reasons you said. Fake because it was just so enjoyable. And I was very relieved how well it had aged compared to New York, New York. So it was just like, thank <laughs> mamma mia that this held up so much better. Or I would have to like throw out one of my dearest possessions. And then of course, Radesha for everything that we already touched upon in the episode itself. But I will also say two standouts for me is one that's actually not out yet by the time of recording, but it will be out by the time this episode drops, which is It's Lonely at the Center of the Earth by Zoe Thorogood. That episode was just purely cathartic for me to record for very personal reasons that I'm not going to go into here, because then I will have to trigger warn this episode as well. And The Prince and the Dressmaker, in a kind of Uno reverse, I felt it was cathartic for you and we had some really loving, interesting conversations, both about ourselves and the comic itself. Yeah, if I had to pick my favourite shows to record, like just pure what it was like to have the conversation, I think Prince and the Dressmaker would be up there, probably side by side with Fake again, because, you know, the whole package, the episode was so fun to record and the, the book was so fun to read. I know you already kind of said that you rediscovered your passion and everything for comics with this podcast, but have you read anything privately this year that you would highlight? Everything else I've read and done has all been work-related, I think. Oh, yes, okay, I'm going to go 
my top pick outside of the podcast, and it's something that I hope we do at some point, it is on our long-term list, is Delicious in Dungeon. I've been really enjoying that. It's just quite an unusual take on a very stuffed-filled genre, which is the sort of RPG slash isekai genre, where the author has clearly thought very carefully about exactly how their video game-esque fantasy works. Delicious in Dungeon just does it so quirkily and so differently and so well. Absolutely love it. Yeah, we're definitely doing that. I have the first volume sitting here ready to go. How about you? What's your what's your best outside of podcast? Mine is also something that I definitely hope we can cover next year. She Loves to Cook and She Loves to Eat by Sakaomi Yuzaki. It's an LGBTQ plus comic that starts out seemingly very lesbian-centered, but further into the comic without spoiling too much. It also includes other rainbow colors. And it also tackles a lot of very serious themes like family abuse and eating disorders, but in a surprisingly gentle way. The comic itself even gives trigger warnings prior to chapters handling some of these themes, so you can always choose to go, I'm not in the mood to read this today, I'm not leveled enough, so I'll come back to this later. It's just a very refreshing portrayal of queer people. Cool. Well, let's definitely put that one on the list then. That's it. Yeah, I think that's a nice place to wrap up. We're looking forward to the next year. Excited to build the list of comics that we're going to be talking about and really hope that you want to join us again for, I guess, another season of The Art of Comics. Yeah, I can't believe we've done this for a year and people listen. Ah! Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's wild. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, thank you. And bye. Bye. And then I could feel my brain just go meep, moop, meep, shut down, dial up sound. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, this will take me a moment. I've just got to open WhatsApp. I Apologies. had to do the exact Future same, tools. which is why I asked you first. <laughs> Alrighty, I guess we should still do the hello, I'm blah, blah. Format. <laughs>